We're in a small book. It's four chapters long. But it's got a significant uh, story that makes a big impact on life's journey for all of us. The book is called Ruth. It's one of two books that are named after a woman in the Bible. This is the only one that's named after a woman who wasn't ethnically Jewish. She was a Moabite. Uh, Moabites have an ambiguous origin along with the Ammonites. They were arch enemies of the people of Israel. And as a result of that, God had uh, desired to take Israel to make them a people of his own possession, to bless them so it would be a blessing to the nations around them. And he instructed the nation of Israel, as they were to be set apart, to not have anything to do with the Moabites. The story opens in the midst of a difficult time. It's a fearful time. Uh, we're told in chapter 1 there's a famine. And then we're introduced to some characters. A man named Elimelech, his wife Naomi, their sons Malon and Kilion. They, in the house of bread, that was the city they were from, Bethlehem, could find no bread. This was likely because the people of God had been warned in Leviticus that if they wandered from God, he would dry up the sky, there would not be any uh, harvest in the field, that he would give them the fruit of their labor. Whenever you want to live your life in the absence of the authority of God, the goodness of God sometimes allows you to experience the consequence of that decision, which then leads a lot of us to shake our fist at God in anger because he gave us what we were asking him for, and that's a life free from the intervention of his hand. So then we get angry at God over the brokenness of the world that comes from God giving us what we've asked for, and that's a godless existence in the world. And then we get angry because we find ourselves living in a literal Babylon where everyone's wild and doing whatever seems fit in their eyes, which is the setting of the book of Ruth. It's a, Ruth, uh, it's a book that's written in a time of lawlessness, the time of the judges, where everyone did as whatever seemed fitting to him. So God's word was a suggestion, but not an authority. Uh, so they would take it into consideration with all the other ideas out there. And as a result of it, they picked and choose which parts of the Bible they wanted to adhere to and which parts of the Bible they wanted to dismiss and discard. And as a result, you had a lawless time when a rebellious people and a dry sky and no harvest in the field. So Elimelech thinks bread is the most important thing. So he packs up his family and leaves and they go to Moab which is directly commanded against them in the word of God. They are not to go to Moab, seek the welfare of Moab, or to seek the hand of Moab, but they then moved to the far off place because they were afraid to die. Elimelech arrives with Naomi, Malon, and Kilion, and guess what happens to Elimelech? He dies. Thinking that by taking his life into his own hands, he would extend his life, he finds that his, hand was always, his life was always in the hand of God, and it's God who appoints the times and places for which we shall live so that no one will be far from him. That's Acts chapter 17, in case you're keeping score to make sure I'm speaking the Bible to you and not opinion. You and your worry, you and your self-interest cannot add a moment to your life. A doctor can extend your life. Uh, at the end of the day, it all sits under the sovereign hand of God, and he's in control of giving life and taking life, extending life and healing life, and ultimately saying, come home when life is done. It's his job to determine, as the giver and sustainer of life, how long life lasts on the earth. They left in fear of death. They find death at their door. So within six verses of the first chapter, we have a famine. We have a failure by Elimelech to lead his family faithfully before God. They don't think, where will we worship? Who will be our community? Instead, they think we need bread. That's the most important thing. So we'll leave the, the people of God and we'll leave the presence of God and go to the far off land in Moab where we have neither, but we may have bread which is the way a lot of us like to live. If i got enough money, I don't need a lot of God. 
That's why Jesus said it's easier for a camel to enter through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich man to enter into heaven. Why? Because you have in your riches the guise of self-sufficiency that makes you think that you don't need to be as desperate as everybody else for God, when in actuality, you need God more than you need bread. However, for most of you, it doesn't sink through the Tesla or whatever it is that you've made as the treasure of your heart. So you dismiss the people of God and the word of God because it doesn't tickle the ears of a man who's in rebellion against God. We walk in the path of our first father, Adam, who failed, who was passive when he needed to be aggressive and silent when he should have been speaking up to defend his family. And we, like Adam, in many ways, as men fell over and over again, refusing to do what God has called us to do and be the men of God that God has called us to be. And so we see Elimelech's failure, which leads to Malon and Kilion walking in the path of their father, marrying women who are Moabites, which was prevented it, uh, which was prohibited in the Bible. Instead of making a 30 to 50 mile walk to find a woman of God, they took what was convenient and what was in front of them. But God was in it and he worked it out. Some of you are like, well, if God works it out, then why should I even bother? Okay, so you're going to hold the knife and try and wreck your life over and over again and then say God intervened over and over again. Like just because God is good and he transcends your human faulty decisions doesn't mean that you are to take the word of God lightly, dismiss it as suggestive, and not position it as an authority over your life. So they disobey the word of God, they get married and make a big mess out of things, and then guess what happens to Malon and Kilion? They die. So we've got a funeral, we've got two weddings, and then we've got two more funerals, and then we've got devastation all in six verses. It's a mess. It's a mess. The future is uncertain. Ruth, Naomi, and Orpah, the wives of Malon and Kilion, Ruth and Orpah, they start to make the walk the men wouldn't walk. They walk back to the presence of God to be with the people of God, not knowing where else to turn in their time of need. So they begin the journey back, but in the middle of it, Naomi, being gracious, understands that culturally, being Moabitess, they're probably going to be rejected in society, and apart from an intervention from God, they're going to be rejected by the people of God, and it's going to be very difficult for them. So they'll just all be long-suffering together in an uncertain future. She doesn't know if she has any family, Naomi, back waiting on her, if there's a kinsman redeemer or someone that can help her. It's not like you can pick up the phone and call back then. They didn't have a mail system, so you can't send word on the journey to find out if there's a place for you. No one's prepared for them upon arrival. Everyone's shocked when they get there. It's been 10 years since she's been around the people of God in the land of God in the presence of God. So who knows what awaits them? So she looks at Orpah and Ruth and she says, guys, it's going to be easier if you go back, not for me, but for you, if you go back to the place where you're culturally assimilated already. Go back to your people, go back to your gods. And after some convincing, Orpah goes back with the blessing of Naomi, but it says that Ruth clings to Naomi. She refuses to go away. You see, sometimes God calls us to do the hard thing that may look absurd to the world, but it's nonetheless obedience to God. And in the hard things that God calls you to do, he always supplies you to do it. Simply put, when it's God's will, it's God's bill. But if it's your effort, you're going to get tired, and you're going to get weary, and you're going to wear out. Some of you are weary and worn out because it's not God's will, and it's not God's bill, but you're continuing to pay it. So you run in arrogance thinking that you're going to figure it out on your own. You're going to figure out in your own self-sufficiency. You don't need grandma's God. You don't need everybody else's faith. You don't need to walk that way. You don't need to humble yourself before God. Instead, in arrogance, you got this. You're really close. And what you don't understand is that you're really close to devastation, not really close to being whole. But you'll fight. You'll argue. You'll leave this church, go to another church three months from now to appease the girlfriend that you're sleeping with and putting your hands on. Instead of putting your hands on the Word of God, you put your hands on women. 
So you dishonor God over and over again repeatedly. I don't know. I'm just talking to somebody in the room. It's always the preacher's fault and Christian's fault, but it's never your fault. But yet you're the only thing that continues to be consistent in the scenario that's chaotic. Welcome to church. We build men up. We don't tear men down. But the point is, men, you've been called to something greater than providing bread. You've been called to not just have a good time, but you've been called to leave a good legacy. And many of you men, for the sake of a good time, are forsaking a good legacy. And God has a better plan for you. God has a desire that you would leave behind a great legacy. I mean, people carry your name for generations, perhaps, after you. And in the short term, you can make decisions for the basis of bread that may be fun, but in the long term, sacrifice a legacy that's worthwhile. That's of God, for God, and gives glory to God. So we wanted to challenge the men last week in love that they would rise up in the spirit of God to be the men of God that God's called them to be, that they would lovingly serve God, worship God, and walk with others and create a community that would love, serve, and worship God alongside them in the communities that they find themselves in. But nonetheless, we've got three women now on a journey that the men wouldn't take. One woman goes back to Moab. Her name's Orpah, and now Ruth and Naomi move forward. And what we get in this sermon is what happens after the funeral. After the funeral. If you have your Bibles, Ruth chapter 1, verse 19, that's where we're going to be. After the funeral. There's nothing more weird than the day of a funeral. I can't think of a less place I want to be than a funeral. I, I, it, it's, you've got people you love, but you hate that you're around them in that circumstance. People you've not seen, but it's because of a tragedy that you now are together in this, and you've got to figure out what you do on that day. And that day is very difficult, but I would submit to you, for those of you that have experienced the funeral, and maybe it's been recent enough that you can remember the funeral, that the worst day, at least in my experience, wasn't the day of the funeral. It felt bad at the time, but it was the day after. Because now I've got to figure out what I'm going to do, where I'm going to go. Like, what's normal now? And that's scarier than the uh, circus that is the funeral, which distracts you from the fact that there's a new normal on the other side of it that you wouldn't have chosen and you have no control over it. And in these moments, you, you get this opportunity for God to intervene in a way that you never wanted him to intervene, but all of us need because it's this recognition and this realization that life is really not in my hands, and it's not in my control, and my future really isn't in my hands, and it's not in my control, and I don't know that I trust God enough to put that much in his hands and in his control. So what happens after the funeral with Ruth and with Naomi? Verse 19, it says this, so the two of them continued on their journey. Uh, it's a couple points I'll make here briefly. Uh, I want to be direct about this. I, I know this can be callous because it's to a lot of people with a lot of different circumstances that are hearing from the Word of God and by the Spirit of God. I trust that the Holy Spirit will help you apply this, but I want to make a point. Uh, they didn't stay in Moab. They didn't live there. They didn't make their home there. They continued on their journey. Orpah went back there, but they couldn't go back. They had to go forward. They had to Move forward. You see, loss presents the difficult task of walking into what I've entitled the new norm. And the new norm's never one that you greet with excitement. This is not like, oh, I get to go to college and I've graduated high school. New norm. 
or I get to start a family and we're going to have kids. New norm. Like, like, these can be good new norms, but most norms after a funeral are unwanted new norms. They're new norms that cause you to ask the question, what will this Mother's Day, Father's Day, what will this Christmas, what will this Easter, what, what, what will it be like now that they're not here? What will it be like when their birthday comes, when Fourth of July comes? What will it be like now they're not here? And, and there's this new norm where they once stood in the space, and now maybe new people standing in the space, but I don't want them in that space yet. I don't want them around me yet. But nonetheless, here we are in this new norm. Naomi and Ruth are walking in grief in a new norm. It's not what they thought it would be. It's not what they wanted it to be. They're walking in uncertainty. They don't know what the future will be. But, and here's the point, they are walking. They're not living in the valley of the shadow of death. They're walking through the valley of the shadow of death. And last I checked, Psalm 23 is clear that the good shepherd's mission is that he would meet us in the present valleys of our lives, but in grace and maybe at a pace that's more aggressive than we think or slower than we think it should be, he leads us through those valleys. He's the good Lord that leads us and walks us through it. You see, many of us refuse to walk when we experience loss, which ensures us of no new norm and no new future. So instead of living in the present, we overlook the present because we're living in the past of a grief that we won't walk through. And as a result of not walking through grief, but living in grief, we make our home there. So instead of grief being a cycle and the goodness of God being seen, not only do we dismiss God's goodness in our grief because we're not walking, we begin to overlook the goodness of what's around us because we're not walking. No one is good enough because it's not them, whatever you lost. And it's all because what was a good relationship and a good gift from God has now become an idol of the heart because we're not walking. My obedience to God was obedience as long as they were with me. But now, my disobedience is justified because God took them from me. You see how this works? That's not walking forward. It may not be what you want. You may have questions. You may have anger. You may have bitterness. You may have a whole myriad of emotions that rise up. But nonetheless, we are called, if we want to heal in our cycle of grief, which some of us don't, but if we want to heal, we're called to walk in whatever state we're in towards God, not from God. Led by God, directed by God, trusting that God in time makes what is painful and unbearable, bearable and even perhaps one day joyful on the other side. Hmm. So the two of them continued their journey. They walked. Were they with grief? Yes. Did they have problems? Yes. Was their future uncertain? Yes. But they walked forward. Look at what it goes on to say in verse 19. When they came to Bethlehem, the house of bread, the entire town was excited by their arrival. How many of you have walked into a room where they were excited to see you and you weren't excited to see them? Anybody been there? Okay. It was in Myrtle Beach yesterday. It said on the t-shirt in front of one of the uh, 99 cent beach stores, uh, I'm late because I didn't want to come. Like, like if, if Naomi could pick a shirt for her arrival in Bethlehem, it's, I'm late, didn't want to come. It's uh, only here so I don't get fined. Like, I, 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 it's, it's, it's that kind of attitude. Like, I'm, I, I'm just doing this because apparently someone said this is the only shot we got. Like, like 
I'm not believing it's a good shot. I don't know if it's a good plan or not. I'm just here. And everyone's like, hey, fill us in in your life. How's it going? You don't want to know that. Because you've all been in places where everyone's excited to see you. You're not excited to be there because you're going through grief and suffering, and they may not be able to visibly see your grief and suffering. But if you were to really let them in on where you were at, that you would understand real quick that they were at giving you the church question, not the real question. The church question is, how are you doing? And that means you say fine and move on no matter what. How do you know that's a church question? Because when you get real with people who want to know, how are you doing? You're like, I'm terrible. I just about committed murder in the van. I'm selling my children. I once thought, how could anyone do mean things to their family? How could you ever hurt someone and be violent? And now I realize this is how you get violent. And I'm thinking thoughts that are from Satan. And they make sense. She shows up. Everyone's excited to see her. And look what they say. Is it really Naomi? I mean, it's been 10 years. We do age, apparently. Some of us don't. My wife doesn't. Mm, praise God. Uh, <laughs> now, I mean, we, we all age. We all, we all change. But when you go through grief, you wear it differently. It, 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 it ages you quickly, doesn't it? I, I've seen people, like, before a funeral, and then on the funeral, the makeup covered it up. But then I saw him, like, on a Tuesday at, like, Winn-Dixie. I remember Winn-Dixie, praise God. Uh, like, at a Winn-Dixie, because that's where you go when you're going low. How's life? If, you, if you're at Winn-Dixie, you don't ask that question. It's, it's, it's low, okay? It's low. It's been a rough time. Things aren't going well right now, okay? Sorry. I've just, I, my ADD just really took that over, and I, I'm trying to reel it in. Okay, hang on. <laughs> I remember my wife and I, uh, I met her granddad like three times, and then he passed away. And so we were going up to the funeral, and they said, hey, you're a preacher, would you pray? I was like, oh, I'd love to pray. But there's, you know, his childhood friend and fishing buddy's going to come to the funeral. I was like, praise God, because I don't have a story other than he made me a tomato sandwich once. Like, that's all I got. <laughs> and so we get up to the funeral, and his buddy doesn't show. So like, where's the other preacher? And they all looked, and I was like 25 at the time. And so the, the, I know that the funeral home people, like, they've seen a lot, but apparently they had never seen, like, oh, God, this is all resting on the shoulders of a 25-year-old preacher that looks like he's 15 and doesn't shave. And uh, I never forget, here's why I tell the story. We walked in to the trailer up in the holler uh, before the funeral, and Morgan and her sisters are quite attractive. And the door opened, and we walked in, and all of the, the Mountain family, um, they, they, they hadn't heard of dentists. They hadn't heard of, like, other, th like, they're all in the trailer. And it was like a record scratched. And, and everyone who was talking, all of a sudden, it's like all eyes are on them. And one, there's two ants in the table. I'll never forget this picture. They're at the table, and they sound like the fun girls from Andy Griffith. Anybody remember the fun girls? Like, they had smoked so much, it's like, hello, doll. Okay, like, like a newer version is that, that teacher from Monsters, Inc., you know, the, the really big one? Okay. Anyway, um, so uh, they're like, uh, one of the ant goes, those girls are beautiful. And the other ant goes, they ain't been doing all that hard living we've been doing. <laughs> to which... To which I was like, is this where we run? <laughs> like, is this like a, a gang thing? Like, y'all are going to beat us in with hard living? And then, like, like, like what's going to happen? And then, I don't know why I have to put this detail in there, but every time I tell the story, i got to tell you. Then one of the ants looked at me and said, you want a fried egg sandwich? And I was like, no, I'm good. I'm totally <laughs> good. 
I mean, down, house, uh, down south hospitality. My, my, my point is, my point is, they wore the grief of what it was like to live there. It, it was a more difficult life. You had to work hard for it. You could visibly see it. Naomi comes into town, but she's not the same Naomi that left town. She's wearing the grief of where she's been. She's wearing the grief of what she's done. In fact, it's so much grief that she's come to the place where she says this in verse 20. Look at it with me. Don't call me Naomi. That, that name describes an old person that's not here. Instead, call me Mara. For our Almighty, we'll talk about that word in a minute, has made life very bitter. Mara is the Hebrew word for bitter. Now, Naomi was a really good name for a good t-shirt or bracelet. Naomi means pleasant. Naomi, is that you? How are you doing? Don't call me pleasant. Call me Mara. Call me bitter. Call me bitter. <laughs> She's saying, I don't feel bitter. Feelings come and go. I have become bitter. I've gone to the DMV, and I've changed my license. It used to say pleasant. It now says bitter. It's not a, a cyclical feeling, a, a something that I feel. It's where I live now. I've changed my address, and I live in the emotion of bitter. You see, a lot of you got a name that means something. Your mom and dad, they thought a lot about it. They talked about it, debated it, gave you that name. But it, if you were to be honest, you don't feel like that describes you effectively anymore. Instead, you're just worried. Uh, it's the only emotion you cycle through over and over again. Like Everywhere you go, worry. You can never be present because you're too worried about what's going to happen in the future. Or you're too worried over what people think about what happened in the past. And so you're just always worried. Like you've made that emotion your home. What's meant to be an emotion that you experience from time to time has now become a house at which you've made your home in. For some of you, you've just made a home out of a place called anger. So you're always angry. And every time your friends go out, they're like, why do we always end up having to pull them off of people like he's about to fight somebody? Like why is he always angry? Because you've made your home in an emotion instead of understanding that it's meant to be a feeling that you feel. You see, what, what's happened to Naomi is that emotion has made her soul sick. And soul sick's the worst kind of sick you can ever be. Some of you go through being physically sick. And there's always a doctor for that. There's a diagnosis. There's a medication. And usually the medication gets to the root. It eradicates the problem. Like if you've got a cold... They give you a Z-Pack, and that Z-Pack goes and it attacks the root cause, which is that, you know, you need something to kill this thing that's going on in you that's causing you to sneeze repeatedly and, and, and whatever's going on. And within a few times, you can find out that there's a short recovery. So you're sick physically. You go to a doctor. The doctor diagnoses it with a medicine that can target it to eliminate it. And within three to five days, you feel good. That's not the way it works with soul sick. When you're soul sick... You can go to a doctor, or you may even be able to identify it. Why are you soul sick? I lost them. Why are you soul sick? We lost everything. Why are you soul sick? It didn't go the way that we thought it would go. Why are you soul sick? My kids are doing what I never thought they would do. Why are you soul You may be able to identify it. It's because this happened. You may even be able to medicate it, but it will not eradicate it. You can medicate it to where you don't feel it, but what you need is an eradication, someone that uproots what's happened to you so that it no longer defines you. So you can take a prescribed medicine that makes you numb and you're not present, but at least you don't feel anything. 
So you can be physically there, even though your soul's so sick that you can't be emotionally there. So you show up, but you cannot actually heal. There's no timeline that you can be given when you're soul sick for when you'll be better. It's not like, you know, you go to church three times, click your heel a couple times, have someone pray every once. It's gonna, I, there's no, like, uh, adjusted or estimated, like, you can be healed. You can be, like, it doesn't exist when your soul's sick. In fact, Proverbs chapter 18, verse 14 says it this way. Look at it with me. The human spirit can endure a sick body, but who can bear a crushed spirit? Whenever you think about it, some of you, you, you have parents that never came through on the covenant relationship of being a mom or a dad. And it just makes you soul sick. And, and grief is cyclical. Like, it's not like, like, like some of you are like, I'm only in grief whenever I'm emotional. No, grief, grief is high tide and low tide. It, it comes in. When it first happens and it's devastating and it's heart-wrenching and you go through the cycle of like, I can't stop crying to I can't cry at all and I'm numb and then you're angry and then you're bitter and then you're worried and then you got like, then like sickly, like you're happy all of a sudden and then you're mad that you're happy. That's how you know you're in grief. It's like, I can't be happy yet. It's too soon. Says who? I can't laugh yet about that memory. It's too... Says who? Everyone tries to inform you when you're in grief about what you should be doing in grief, but yet, let's just be honest, as a culture, we stink at grief. And when you get soul sick, they run a lot of studies, and they don't really know the, the timetable for healing from grief, but it, it is cyclical in that it, it, you're fine until you're not fine. Like yesterday, we spread my Aunt Kim's ashes illegally in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. If you want to come at me, police, you can come at me. It's been a year, a little over a year, since she passed away, and I was fine until we hit the beach. Until we went to all the places that I went to with my aunt, and all the memories start triggering. And I'm not fine. Like, I'm not, I'm not okay. And then I'm standing there with my dad, and my aunt was a believer. She loved the Lord. I know where we stand in light of eternity. I know that I'm going to see her again. I'm going to, around the throne of God, worship God forever with her. It's going to be an incredible moment. But, but there's no more new memories, and that makes me bitter. No more Christmases, and that makes me angry. She was the best catalog gift buyer you'll ever meet. I mean, I got camouflage pajama pants that I've worn like twice, and Morgan's like, no. She bought me jegging pajama pants one year that are very inappropriate. I put them on and went into her house before she passed away. And I was like, I just want you to know this is what you did to me. She's like, I never wanted to know that that was my nephew. I was like, that's all me. So you're like, this is inappropriate. I'm grieving. Get over it. Like, and we, we spread her ashes. And it was just like it was yesterday. We went from being in low tide to high tide again. And, and I'm not okay. I, I still expect to hear her voice. I can still smell her. And I'm afraid of losing the smell. Isn't that weird? Like it's like this mix of cigarettes and potpourri, and I, I, I never want. <laughs> not okay. I'm not okay. 
I'm, I'm still not okay that my granddad's gone, and I got him for like 90 years. And I know you're like, well, you got him for a long time. Well, I liked him. I didn't actually want him to leave. Some of you are like, well, I, 90 years was enough for me. They go, that's not me. I'm not okay with that. I still expect my grandma to come through the path or try to cut a cartwheel with us in the front pa- in, in the field up at her house. Like I, I can still smell her goulash and her waffles. Like I, I, I'm, 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 I'm not okay. For some of you, it may not be grief or loss. Like Morgan and I invested 12 years of our life in California planting a church, and God blessed it, and it was great. And between the pandemic and COVID and a merger, it just went kaput. And we looked at each other like, we can't do this anymore. We lost friends. We lost relationships. I randomly got people that'll call me out of the blue, and they're like, I forgive you. And I'm like, for what? Like, what have I done? Like, I, <laughs> I'm not okay. For a lot of you, you're convinced that it's okay to not be okay for a while, but, but, but you got to get over it. And, and it's not okay to still not be okay about things that are years in your past and be in the presence of God or be a person of faith. Well, that's a lie. Straight from the pit of hell. Doctors have shown that when you go through tragic loss, it's six months to four years of recovery. But there's also statistics out there that show that most of the community around the grieving pay attention with a extraordinary compassion for 72 hours. So I'm going through losses that are going to take six months to four years in the hands of a sovereign God to faithfully heal and work out a new normal that brings my mourning into joy. But I've got a community that will support me for three days of a minimum six-month journey. Is it any wonder why most of us never go through the cycle of grief and heal? When the faith community gives you three days for a minimum six-month journey, So I I just want to just go ahead and say, in this house, six to four years, and if it takes a little longer, it's okay. It's okay. Be angry, but let's be angry coming towards God, not walking from God. Be bitter, but let's be bitter walking towards God, not walking away from God. Be indifferent and numb, but let's be indifferent and numb still walking towards God because he's the only one I know that can do the soul surgery I need to do because when you're soul sick, I don't have the medicine for it. I don't have the words for it, but we've got the presence of God and the promise of God and he's not failed, so let's together keep going after God even when we're not okay, trusting that in time, someday we'll look up and know that the new norm is joyful and that a good God has been seen in the process. I'm not okay and you're not okay maybe and that's okay with God. God. Now notice the question. The question is, why are you bitter? Verse 21, Naomi's answer. Look at it with me. She says, uh, that would be Ruth 1, 21, I went away full, but the Lord has brought me home. Is, is she trying to PR it like, it's a broken world and God was absent from it and he just didn't see it and we walked to Moab out of his sight and he just, we were in the darkness and we hid from him. It's as foolish, like, like thinking God is absent from your tragedies is as foolish as thinking that Adam and Eve are really going to be able to hide from God whenever they sinned. She knows. No, no, no. He's Lord. He has brought me home. Like, we're in a teardown situation. Sparrow doesn't fall from the sky outside of the presence of God knowing it. 
Therefore, my husband and my sons didn't die because God was sleeping. This is tough. Good God, bad, broken world. In the meantime of his first coming and his second coming, we get this brokenness that continues to pervade society that brings pain and heartache in unexpected places. But she knows, now he knows, the Lord's brought me home empty. Why call me pleasant when the Lord has caused me to suffer and the Almighty has sent such tragedy upon me? This ain't fun church, but it's real church. Verse 20, she says, he's almighty. At the end of verse 21, she says, he's almighty, which is the Hebrew word Shaddai, which means God is great. She didn't use the word Lord twice in the middle of the text. She says, he's Lord. He's brought me back. The Lord has brought me back with nothing. The Lord has left me with nothing, which in Hebrew is Yahweh, which is the covenant name that God gave Israel as a sign of his promise to be good and faithful to them. So she says, the great God who is good has allowed me to suffer. has allowed me to walk in emptiness. Hmm. What has the great and good God done? I went away full, but I've come home empty. Now, this, this is blind grief. <laughs> she went away because they didn't have bread. She went away because Elimelech chose bread over God, bread over community. She realized now that she has neither the presence of God or the people of God that some things are more important than bread. But it doesn't make it right. It just means that she's in the wrong place with no way to get right before God in her mind. See, some of you have spent your whole life chasing bread. And you've not learned yet that there's something greater than bread out there. You need more than just bread to survive. I mean, thank God that Jesus wasn't like Elimelech because Jesus was tempted by Satan after fasting for 40 days. And the first thing Satan offers him is what? Bread. But he doesn't run to Moab into the enemy's camp to get the bread. Instead, he walks the line. And he says, man doesn't live by bread alone, but on the word of God. This is, this is, I know it's hard to understand, but, but stay with me. Lean in. This is why God's good in the midst of things that aren't. Hebrews teaches us that he is the all-sympathizing or empathizing Savior, that there's nothing that you go through that he can't say, I've been there and I'm able to lead you in it. And I don't completely understand why God hasn't blown the trumpet yet because it's getting crazy. I'm ready. I'm on team. I don't need another 5 o'clock. I don't need another vacation. I don't need to see a tropical island. I, I don't know what other world experiences there could be, but I'm just going to say I, I don't need them more than I need Jesus to come back because I'm sick of it. But in the meantime, I know that in the midst of it, my unwell, 
It ain't well. My uncertain future, my whatever it is that's going on, I know that though it's hard to comprehend his goodness because of how painful it is, that he knows what I'm going through. He feels what I feel because he is the high priest who sympathizes with his creation. See, he was tempted just like you were tempted. He experienced grief just like you experienced grief. Like losing his father when he was a teenager. <laughs> Yet some of you don't think God knows what it's like to lose a dad. God the Father allowed his son to be crushed for our iniquities and our sin. Yet some of you act like God doesn't know what it's like to lose a son. He was completely betrayed and abandoned, yet some of you act like God doesn't know what to do with betrayal and abandonment. He was tempted by Satan, but he didn't fail, yet some of you think that your temptations are greater than Jesus' temptations. I'm not here to fix your unwell, but I'm here to tell you that God's in your unwell. And this is the beauty of the story. You see, that the good news is that it may not be good, but there's a good God in it. And if there's a good God in it, you may not see a miracle, but you will see his providence. And that's what happens in this chapter. They come home, they're bitter, their future's uncertain, they need food, they need family, they need hope. They don't know where they're going to find food, family, or hope. But we begin to read that God is all over the story, even though we've yet to sense his presence in it. Look at what it says. Verse 22. They're coming, coming bitter. They're coming, coming in grief. In the midst of it, it says, So Naomi returned from Moab, accompanied by her daughter-in-law Ruth, the young Moabite woman. They arrived in Bethlehem in late spring at the beginning of the... That's what you make bread with. They left because they had no bread. They come back to God not expecting anything from God, but guess what they find? bread. The seat's at the table already. The table's already set. You need food, God has food, he's ready to provide. That's providence. Just so happened to make it back on the day that the harvest starts. Which, by the way, is the first harvest of the calendar year if you look at Jewish agriculture. Which means they're going to have time not only to stack up enough grain for bread, but they're going to have time to harvest every other fruit of the field too. That's the grace of God. It's not what I want. It's what you need. I don't like the way he's with me, but he's with you. I don't know how much longer I'm going to have to be here, and I don't think I can endure it, but he'll endure it. He'll carry you. He'll supply you. He'll do what you can't do. When you're out of breath and you don't have enough, he's all-powerful and almighty should die. Yahweh, who is good. Look at what he goes on to say, though, if you go to the next chapter, and we'll get into this some next week in great detail. Now, there was a wealthy and influential man in Bethlehem. His name was, which means strong link. <laughs> who was a relative of which means he can be a kinsman redeemer, which I left myself no time to explain, but we'll talk a lot about it next week because it's used three times in this text. We don't need another Elimelech in this story. And we're not going to find a perfect man, but we need a godly man. 
And what God has prepared is a relative of Naomi who can be the kinsman redeemer for Ruth. And there's three things I want you to see quickly. I'll be quick about it. Number one, he's a relative of Elimelech, which means he can be a kinsman redeemer. Number two, we're told that he's rich, which means he's worthy. Rich not in the sense of like affluence, but he can provide for someone other than himself. Worthy in that he has provided and stacked up provisions so they can care for someone. The Hebrew word for worthy is the same word that's used to describe Gideon whenever Gideon is called to fight the battle against the 300. And here's what's amazing. Boaz never will lead an army. He'll never fight in a battle or by the world standard perform a heroic feat. He'll marry a destitute woman and they will have a child. And that's the end of their story. And out of that, a godly legacy is born that leads to a king from a, that's the great-grandson of this kid named Obed that they have, whose name will be David, who'll be born in the house of bread. He will then have a promise that there will be a greater king that will come through his line named, and all it seemed that Boaz did was just marry a woman as a single man and have a family. Yet somehow in Boaz's faithfulness to his family and the providence of him being available at the right time in the right place, being a man of God that was ready for the work of God in his life, he gets a legacy that extends way beyond any act of heroism that many of us would call heroic or do. Here's my point. There's bread in the house and there's a man in waiting. There's a relationship that God had prepared and there was the sustenance that they were going to need that was going to be there. In need of food, family, and hope, God walked Naomi and Ruth into a harvest that would, that would be found in the field of the Redeemer named Boaz. And the rest would be history. And here's my question to those of you that are in that first day after the funeral. And maybe you've been there for a long time. Number one, are you walking through grief or are you sitting in it? Are you walking through grief or are you sitting in it? I'm not telling you to get okay or be okay. This isn't about you being okay. This is about you being faithful to be before the presence of God so that he can do the healing that only he can do in your life. You may not be okay, but are you in his presence? Are you open to his work? Are you open not just to the miraculous hand of God, but to the providential hand of God that's at work in your life? See, miracles, that, that's when you can visibly see them in real time, but providence is never seen usually in real time. It's when you look in the rear view and you realize, I didn't think God was there, but he was there. I didn't think God was there, but the harvest was going on. I didn't think God was there, but the relationships were already lined up. The point wasn't the relationship. The point was being faithful to walk with God. And he would heal me and prepare me to move from sorrow to joy. He would heal me and prepare me to move from wherever I've been to whatever I called to be next. Are you walking in grief or are you sitting in it? Number one. Number two, are you ignoring those who are grieving around you? Give people more than 72 hours. In order for the paralytic's friends in the New Testament to be good friends, they had to slow down. They had to carry him everywhere they went. So they couldn't go as fast. It wasn't efficient. They, they hauled him around for perhaps years. But they were willing to go slow to be a good friend. When you have people around you in grief, you sometimes got to go slow to be a good friend. Oh, this is good. I know I'm at the end. I'm supposed to wrap it up. But some of you, you're wanting to go fast. So you're not a good friend because they can't go fast right now. So in order to be a good friend to those that are grieving, sometimes you got to go slow so that you can be 
a good friend. Oh, I got a couple more if you got a minute to push in. Are you bitter towards God over the consequences of following yours or others' foolish decisions? Meaning, if you marry an Elimelech, don't shake your fist at God because you get the fool's harvest. Told you I had more. If you, like think outside of the authority of God that you would make something out of yourself and all you made is a wreck. Don't shake your fist at God because you took your life and train wrecked it. No, no, we come in humility before God, knowing that we need God, knowing that by the grace of Jesus we get to have mercy and forgiveness. Finally, are you dismissing God's providence in your current situation? Meaning, are you overlooking the unseen ways that God is lining up and surrounding you with everything you need for the healing that he's calling you to walk into? I love this, and this will for real be the point, and then we can flood the altar, okay? But uh, here we go. Boaz, his name means strong link. What was going on in Naomi's life was not a renovation, but a complete restoration, a start over. They were tearing it down to the studs. You see, so, sometimes God, in his grace, has a foundation he, just, he chooses to build on. It's imperfect in some ways, but nonetheless, he chooses to build on that foundation and renovate what's not good. But there are some times where God comes in and it's a complete restart. And so graciously, he just lets the whole thing fall to the ground. And you're like, why aren't you intervening? And he's like, oh, i got to restart. I'm not building on a faulty foundation. And many of us, we, we hear sermons about Boaz and we're like, all right, men, be Boaz. Nope, not the sermon. That is not application. There's a greater Boaz. He's a strong link. He said that anyone who builds their life on his rock is a firm foundation that will stand strong. And for some of you, you got a weak link in your start. You started with an earthly father that failed. You started with your own uh, decisions that collapsed down on top of you, and the entire house came in, and it burned up in a huge calamity. You're sitting there looking at the ashes of it going, what's the restart here? Well, the good news, there's a strong link. His name is Jesus. And no matter your starting point, he invites you to link to him. So no, you're not Boaz. Jesus is the greater Boaz. You're a broken man and a broken woman, and you need a restart. Many of you today need a restart. And there's a strong link named Jesus that's strong, and he invites you and your weakness to link to him. Because he's the firm foundation. He's the rock on which you can stand. He's the eye in the middle of the storm. He is the blessing in the midst of the curses of life. He is a good God and faithful in the midst of unfaithful people that abandon and walk away from us. And today, some of you have experienced the brokenness of your own will or the sinful decisions of others, and you're in a tear-down situation. You're in a tear-down. It's not a reno. The foundation's faulty. we got to rip it out. And we need to restart. If that's you, then I invite you to leave your arrogance and self-sufficiency, that guise that keeps you in your seat, crossing your arms, going, barefoot man, shut up so I can get out of here, behind. And allow people at this altar in the next few moments to talk with you about what it means to link to the strong link, Jesus. The real man who's the God-man, Jesus. who has grace that is deep as the greatest devotions and mercy that he can give. So, so to those who need to start over, can I introduce you to Jesus today? For those that are weak and you've tried to put up the guise, like there's not enough creatine and weights 
There's not enough success. There's not enough approval from a father that never is going to give it to you. So, so instead of trying to build on that foundation, today for you may be the day of restart. I invite you to build on Christ. Our prayer team's going to be here to my left and your right. If you need prayer, we humbly ask for the opportunity to pray with you. If you don't have a relationship with Jesus, we invite you to the altar to give your life to Jesus. May today be a day that for some of you is a restart. May today be a day that you go through bitterness, but you trust in faith like the guy who wrote it as well did after he had lost his family at sea. In the spot where he lost his family, it's rumored that that's where he wrote this very hymn that we've sung in the past. It is well. May you today find healing and knowing that all pain and all suffering and all tears are held and have purpose and meaning in the hands of a righteous and holy God who's present. I mean, the ending picture is him wiping away the tears of the saints. So we cry them now because they won't be cried in heaven. Oh, man, I could go all day, all day. I, I'm telling you, I could keep, I'm, I know, I got to shut up. There's no tears in heaven. There's tears here. There's no grief in heaven. There's grief here. It's okay. Because he's here. You move as the Lord leads. Ascend our feet. In Jesus' name, amen.